Good morning. Welcome again. My name is Tim Fox. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we are at Psalm 120 this morning. If you're using one of the blue church Bibles, that's page 516, kind of right about in the middle of the Bible. Uh, the word psalm is an old-timey English word that means song. Um, it, this use of it here in the Bible, this is the biggest book in the Bible. There's 150 psalms. Uh, it's a collection of not just poetry, but of, of worship songs. Uh, it's written uh, for God's people uh, to train us and prepare us uh, to bring all of our prayers to God in all of our emotional states, uh, but particularly uh, in worship with God's people. Uh, the Psalms, there's a lot of them, but the order of them didn't fall out of one of those tumbly lotto machines. There's actually a, an order to it. There's a structure to it. Uh, it's organized into five books. Uh, these Psalms that we're going to be in the next couple months are in book five. Uh, book five is kind of the culmination of all the Psalms. Uh, it's largely concerned with uh, the people of God assembling uh, to worship him, going to his place uh, to be with him and with his people. And so this collection that we're going to be looking at for the next couple months uh, is in that book. It's called The Psalms of Ascents, uh, and it's uh, very much focused on God's people being gathered. So please read along with me, uh, and then keep your Bibles open uh, in front of you as we go along through it. Psalm 120. A Song of Ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you once again for speaking to us clearly and powerfully in your word. Lord, bring these words written so many thousands of years ago, bring them to us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might see in them the face of Jesus Christ revealing to us your glory. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, many of you know that we have just recently returned from a sabbatical. Uh, I and my family are very grateful to all of you that you've so generously given me this time uh, to recuperate, to rejuvenate, to rest from the joys and labors of pastoral ministry. Uh, some of you know that we spent most of our time uh, back in St. Andrews, Scotland, uh, which is a town where we lived before we moved here to Texas. Uh, something I was just telling somebody that, that helps me being originally from Californian. When I have to admit to Texans that I am Californian, I at least can tell them I didn't come straight here. I came from Scotland. St. Andrews... St. Andrews has never been a big town, uh, but in the Middle Ages, it was a hugely important and popular site for pilgrimage. Christians traveled to St. Andrews. Uh, it had a massive cathedral right there on the bluff above the sea. Uh, they came from all over Europe. It was one of the biggest pilgrimage sites in Europe uh, because supposedly uh, it housed the bones of Andrew, the apostle, 
who was Jesus' very first disciple, the brother of Peter. Uh, Now the cathedral is in ruins, but the town remains a very different kind of pilgrimage site, Uh, not because it's the home of saintly bones, but because it's the home of golf. Uh, Every year, thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all over the world make a long journey to this little town so that they can spend a few hours in the rain cursing the wind and whacking a little ball. (laughs) But today, we are beginning a vastly more important pilgrimage. Psalm 120 is the first of 15 psalms of ascents. Each one begins with that little line that we heard, a song of ascents, going up. They are all set in the context of pilgrimage, going up to Jerusalem. These psalms were sung by the Jewish people as they would go up to Jerusalem for the three annual festivals that God had commanded Israel to keep there in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus himself almost certainly would have sung these psalms as he carefully kept God's commands that all Jews go to Jerusalem to keep these festivals. Uh, But the Psalms are also clearly set, not just in the context of geographically going up to Jerusalem, but also in the context of going up historically from Israel's 70-year exile in Babylon. Uh, They went home to their promised land after God had righteously and justly cast them away into a painful and baffling sojourn away from home. But these psalms are not just about the literal Jerusalem, whether we're talking about uh, a pilgrimage for a festival uh, every year or whether we're talking about a historical return from the exile. These psalms are ultimately about a spiritual exile about a spiritual return. They are about our longing and our seeking of what the New Testament calls the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, The letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says that those who believe in Jesus have come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere that the Jerusalem above is our mother, The very end of the Bible concludes with the conclusion of exile, but not with us escaping from planet Earth, but rather there in the last couple chapters of the Bible with the heavens, what's called the new Jerusalem, descending down to the Earth. But in its current state of distortion and devastation, this world is both our home and also not our home. But the main emphasis of these psalms is on the latter. These psalms emphasize how and why this world is not our home, at least in its current form. We're going to see as we go through the psalms of the sense that that does not mean that our lives and our relationships here on earth don't matter. The psalms of a sense will repeatedly show us otherwise. But this collection of poetry is here to train us emotionally And intellectually and liturgically, that means in worship, they're here to train us to go home. They are the songs, uh, they are, you could think of it as the playlist of those who are living out the truth that's found in the letter to the Hebrews that says that here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that's to come. And yet this first psalm 
says nothing about going or getting anywhere. Uh, We're going to see that next week in the much-loved Psalm 121. But today, Psalm 120 begins in darkness. It's a lament. It's a song written in a bleakly minor key. It's mournfully praying through the pain and the frustration of living far away from home. Uh, Nobody wants to go if they don't first want to leave. And so with the aching sadness of the psalm, it's here to show us why we're on a pilgrimage. It's here to show us why we should long to get out of here and to go there. Now look at how the psalm begins. It says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. The psalm begins with distress. But even more importantly, it begins with calling out to God in that distress. And even more importantly than us calling out to God in our distress, it begins with God answering our call in our distress. God responds. God hears when we cry out to him in the pain of life far from home. This is the main point of the whole psalm. It's the main thing that God is telling you this morning. The psalm is a deeply emotive cry of somebody in distress. That's true. But its first foot forward is really the reminder that God answers those cries from our distress. How does he do that? Look at verse 2. He says, Deliver me, O Lord. God answers his suffering, exiled people, not with a shrug, but with deliverance. It's similar to the idea that you read about all over the Bible, the idea of salvation, uh, the idea of rescue. Those are all related to each other. Uh, But this word in particular uh, is this idea of being taken out. Uh, A couple times in the Old Testament, this word is used to describe a shepherd, a big, buff, brawny shepherd, ripping a sheep out of the mouth of a lion. It's the idea of being torn out of somewhere. Our God is a God who rips us from distress. But what causes the distress? What makes exile away from home so painful? Why do we so desperately need God's deliverance? The psalm goes on. It spends much of its time expressing the distress of looking out is what it first does. The distress of looking out. But then it ends with the distress of looking in. Let's start with the distress of looking out. Now, of course, the psalmist could have cried out for deliverance from many things. So can we. Uh, All of us have come this morning with all kinds of problems and concerns, many of them overwhelming us. But did you notice what he focuses on? The thing that he really cries out for deliverance from. Uh, It's maybe a little bit surprising. Maybe a bit of a letdown. He says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. He looks around at his world and he sees lies and treachery everywhere. He and we have a lot of things to be distressed about. 
But the psalmist is overwhelmed by all of the deception. Much of it self-deception. Isn't it the same for us today? Declining levels of trust everywhere in our society. Widespread fraud in college and sports and business. Growing evidence that huge portions of academic research is faked or corrupt. Marriages and families and churches built on manipulation and half-truths. Unrelenting pressure to embrace statements and policies and movements that are obviously absurd and hideous, but no one's allowed to say that. It's all pretty discouraging, but before you get too discouraged, we should look on the bright side. At least we have politics. (laughs) Is the distress of looking out, falsehood everywhere, But what makes deception so terrible is that by its very nature, it's not obvious. Lies settle down in the guise of truth. And we live in a society that is extraordinarily shallow. Uh, If you call something love, if you trot out a chart with a hockey stick type shape to it, if you share a viral video, if you assemble a couple of experts, if you point to your emotions and your experience, then the discussion's over. There's no argument to be had. But like Jesus says, the wolves come to us in sheep's clothing. The Apostle Paul says somewhere else that the devil comes to us as an angel of light. The Bible is clear that ever since Adam and Eve first savored and then swallowed Satan's lies in paradise, that deception has now become the default setting of this world, even of our own hearts. The tragedy, according to the Bible, the tragedy of the human condition is that in many ways, we want to be deceived. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that humans love the darkness rather than the light, he says, because their works are evil. The Apostle Paul begins his letter to the Romans by showing how humans have universally suppressed, he says, they've suppressed the truth that we know about God and about his world. Paul says that we've exchanged that truth for a lie and that like an inflated currency, our minds are debased. Paul says right there also that the sexual degeneracy that was and is so proudly celebrated in his world and now in ours that that manifests and flows out of this same fundamental falsehood, this refusal to face the obvious truth. To become a Christian, according to the Bible, is to have this basic orientation toward darkness transformed into an orientation toward light. Now listen to Jesus with his characteristically stupendous Self-regard. Imagine anybody else saying anything like this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus also says in the Gospel of John, I am the truth. As Pastor John recently taught us, the Apostle Peter's first letter is written to Christians who are feeling the sharp end of the spear 
of living as exiles and strangers in this world. Uh, He's writing for people about whom Psalm 120 is written. Uh, One of the constant themes of Peter's first letter is that like Jesus, his followers are going to often be the object of lies. They're often going to be facing falsehood at great cost to themselves. Uh, Listen to the kinds of things that Peter says about living in a world of lies. Peter says that Christians are going to be called evildoers. He says they will face the ignorance of the foolish. They will suffer unjustly. They and their behavior, he says, are going to be reviled. He says they will be mocked for not joining in the debauchery that people enjoy all around us. He says that they're going to be insulted. Following Jesus in a world of lies is very hard. For many Christians around the world, many Christians throughout history, following Jesus has meant losing your reputation, losing your prospects, losing your relationships, sometimes losing your life. In our own society, which is rejecting God and his truth in ways that many of us have never experienced before, following Jesus is going to become more and more painful. We are experiencing the distress of looking out on a world of deception. Not least as we continue to find stubborn remnants of the world in our own hearts. But like I said, our God is a God who answers his people when they cry out to him in their distress. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Tear me out of the lion's mouth the psalmist says. Now, how does God do that? Again, might surprise you. Verses 3 and 4 give us God's answer to the cry of his distressed people. God's good and loving answer to the falsehood of the world. God's answer is his holy wrath. His holy wrath. The psalmist says, he asks rhetorically, What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. And so in the distress of looking out on a world of lies, the psalmist recalls that God is a God of deliverance from evil, that God will do something about it. Given that the world is what it is, given that evil is what it is, It's good news that God is not a cosmic version of shopping mall Santa. It is good news that God cannot and does not just shrug his shoulders, does not just sweep it all under the rug. It's good news, as scripture repeatedly tells us, that the God of perfect love and beauty is a warrior. The arrows that we hear about here, shot with perfect precision through the tongues of liars. The burning charcoal incinerating the filth of falsehood. These are God's arrows. This is God's charcoal. In his love for his own beauty and for his creation, God is at war with every form of evil. Now, God wages this war partially in history. That's part of the reason why we should study history. But ultimately, God will wage this war totally and finally at the end of history, 
When, as the book of Revelation tells us, the last book of the Bible, when Jesus himself will come as a conquering king, soaked in the blood of his enemies. The distress of looking out. A world of lies and God's answer to it. His holy and his righteous and his good judgment. But now look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 where there's something of an emotional and a poetic downshift. We now have the distress of looking in. The ache of exile. After this somewhat angry outburst, the psalmist slows down and says, Woe to me. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. I know a lot of you have been dying to hear a good sermon about what to do about Meshech. So today is your lucky day. Meshech and Kedar are regions. They're areas. Uh, Meshech was an area on the south side of the Black Sea. Uh, Today we hear a lot about Ukraine and the Crimea. Those are on the north side of the Black Sea. So if you go all the way across that sea, you are in an area that used to be called Meshech. In the Bible, the people of Meshech are notorious for their savagery. Uh, Kedar is another region. Uh, Kedar is a region on the north side of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Think today of where modern-day Jordan is, if you know where that is. Uh, Its people were desert nomads uh, known for having black tents. Uh, For the cartographers keeping track at home, this means that Meshech and Kedar are on complete opposite sides of Israel. You cannot actually be in both places at once. The point, besides these grim undertones of barbarism and darkness and wandering, the point of saying I live in these two places is that the psalmist is far from home. He's far from God's presence, even though it's entirely possible that the psalmist literally is living within the land of Israel itself. Because you see, in his estrangement from the world and the people around him, he's simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. He's expressing the sadness of being away from home for so long. He's expressing the gnawing hunger of being a pilgrim and a sojourner. It's an expression of sorrow, of being out of step with everybody around you. It's an expression of the pain of wondering if maybe you're the crazy one. It's something like how the main character in the book 1984 uh, feels as he's agonizing through the whole book, wondering if there's anybody else out there in the world who can see through all the propaganda like he does. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, this here is more than a rebuke of enthusiasm for war, uh, something that many American Christians in particular uh, have been too prone to, myself included. This is something more than an assumption. Uh, It's more than a critique of the assumption that God's kingdom... Uh, has the same goals as the U.S. military and intelligence agencies. More than that, broader than that, beyond geopolitics, the psalmist is building on what he said earlier at the beginning of the psalm uh, about lying and falsehood. He's saying, everywhere I go, 
there's conflict. Everywhere I go, everyone is out to destroy me and each other. And at the end of the day, he says they hate peace. But of course, in our deception, nobody wants to say, I hate peace. Uh, All of us, I think, would like to say, oh no, I'm a peaceful person, I'm a good person, I'm just trying to get along. But again, we remember studying history that the greatest tyrants have ruled in the name of justice. We remember looking around, maybe some of us in our own uh, histories, uh, the most dysfunctional families devour each other under the banner of love. Maybe love, scare quotes. Uh, The Roman historian Tacitus famously quoted one of the enemies of the Romans saying this, the Romans make a desert and they call it peace. The psalmist says, I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Literally, he says, I am peace. Uh, The word here gets at the idea of wholeness and restoration. The point here is that his basic orientation is towards the kind of healing and integrity that comes from being properly oriented towards God and toward his truth. Now, obviously, you can tell very clearly from this psalm, his life is not a life of ease or indifference or naivety. And so when he says, I am peace, I am for peace, it means that his most basic desires, his most basic longings are for God's peace, for God's wholeness. In his own heart, but not just in his own heart, also in his relationships and in the world. The fact that this basic orientation is so different from the chaos And the conflict of the world all around us is what makes it so sad and painful to sojourn in it. And so he says, Woe to me that I live in Meshech. Too long have I dwelt among the warmongers. And so he's saying, When is it ever going to end? I've had enough of this. We should feel this kind of ache today. And one of the constant temptations for a Christian is to become comfortable with this world to settle down in it to act like this is the only one that really matters even though we would never actually say that especially in a culture that's driven by media and consumption we are constantly bombarded with attempts to enchant us to believe that this world and its pleasures are all that really matter but this psalm shows us that we should feel like exiles We should feel like strangers here, even though everything around us is trying to deceive us into thinking that we can find peace and wholeness now. If only we have the right body or the right job, the right product or the right politician. And of course, as uh, many of us here could testify from our own lives, as we see here in this psalm, in his kindness... God often uses suffering to break the deceptive enchantment of our idols. Whether those idols are politics or comfort or self-fulfillment. God's using suffering in the life of the psalmist here to keep him from becoming enchanted with this lie that the world is our home. How are you doing here? Are you feeling the ache of being a stranger? 
Are you feeling the pain of being far away from your heavenly home if you're a Christian here today? Rather than masking over the ache with drinking or working or traveling, are you instead taking that ache to the Lord in prayer like we read about here? It's easy to feel and to say, woe is me. A lot of us feel like that all the time. But when you do feel and say, woe is me, is it just kind of bouncing around within the echo chamber of your own heart? Or are you taking it to the Lord in prayer? Are you saying, woe is me before him and with him and for him? We said earlier that God answered the psalmist's distressful look outward, that he answered that cry with a promise of righteous judgment on evil. But how does he answer the cry of the distressful look inward, that sense of woe? When you look at the psalm here, it ends very bleakly. It's just war as far as the eye can see. But God's answer to the sadness of exile was already contained in the first couple lines of the psalm. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me, deliver me, O Lord. Again, God is a God of deliverance, of rescue, of salvation. Our longing for home can only be resolved in God's gift of a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. I speak, of course, of the Lord Jesus. His very name, the name Jesus, means the Lord saves. Jesus is he whom the prophet Isaiah promised would be the Prince of Peace. And he has come into our world, God in the flesh, to deliver his people from sin and sorrow. Jesus is he whom the prophet Micah promised would be our peace. And he's now descended into this world of darkness. He's promising his pilgrim people, not that he will immediately transport you out of the world, but rather that he would be with you in the world, in the midst of your suffering, transforming you and changing you, preparing you to truly go home by the power of his Holy Spirit until he finally returns and heals and cleanses everything. If anybody could have truly and fully said, I am a man of peace. I am for peace. I am peace. If anyone could have truly said it, it was he. And yet Jesus faced lies and slander and treachery. He was executed on the cross under false charges of insurrection and blasphemy. On the cross, the greatest darkness the world's ever seen fell upon him as he himself took the sharp arrows and burning coals of God's holy wrath in our place. And the night before he did all that, he said this to his distressed disciples. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. In my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So just like God answered Jesus' 
anguished cry for deliverance by raising him from the dead, so also will God answer your anguished cry for deliverance from deception and darkness and death. You're going home. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice to think that the best is in front of us. As wonderful and as beautiful as this world is, as many joys as you so kindly pour out upon us every day, this is not our home. Forgive us for the ways that we've become enchanted with the things of this world, for the ways that we have settled for so little when you have promised and prepared for us so much. Help us, Lord, in our pilgrimage, in our journeying towards our heavenly home. Help us to live lives of patience and peace and gentleness now in this world. For we ask it in Jesus' name.